Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is the Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 90-something. Um, actually, King aside, I think it's 94. I think. And before we start, I'd like to thank Wade Cardall, or Cardall, uh, for liking the Week in Doubt Facebook page. And I'd also like to thank Tori Lamore and Modern Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, tomato, tomato, for following the show on Twitter. Much appreciated. And I'd also like to thank friend of the show, Mark Anthony Songer, for recently getting in touch and expressing his thoughts on last week's episode, which was basically a short list of reasons why I doubt the existence of a higher power. And uh, those of you who've been listening to his show for a while may have already heard me talk about Mark in the past. Um, Even though he's a friend of the show, he's a believer, a teacher of apologetics. And we have a very civil uh, rapport with one another, even though we have diametrically opposed worldviews, at least uh, theologically speaking. we, um, We get on very well, and our debates, if you can call them that, are always very civil and respectful. But we don't really hold any uh, punches either, and we're not really afraid to voice our convictions or opinions. And I like it when Mark gets in touch because he kind of um, keeps me on my toes with his rather intelligent and insightful counter-arguments. And this is a show that's meant for everyone, in the sense, right in the tagline, it says, for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And I'm sincere about the the uh, whoever, even though it sounds kind of uh, irreverent. And I think it's good for us as non-believers to make sure that we're not kind of just dwelling in an echo chamber or a vacuum. I think it's good to kind of put our brain power to the test and regularly try to examine the arguments of the uh, opposing side and kind of sharpen our wits by um, trying to respond to them intelligently and thoughtfully. Uh, So in that spirit, I'd actually like to read the message that Mark sent me, and I hope he doesn't mind. I don't think he will. Um, I've read uh, messages of his on the air previously. So I'll go ahead and do that now. Hey, Phil, I've been meaning to send this for a couple of days, but got sidetracked. I'm sure it won't surprise you that I have several responses and counter arguments to the things you mentioned on your Why I'm an Atheist podcast, but I won't go into all of them as I'm sure you have heard them before. Actually, the reason for my note is hoping you could explain one of your arguments for me. You mentioned in your discussion on the problem of evil and suffering how you couldn't imagine that a good God would allow for animals to eat other animals. I have heard this argument a couple of times before and always found it a bit strange. Why would this be an issue for an atheist? Naturalistic evolution, if it is true, has brought about carnivorous activity. It is the way the world works. In fact, since many single-celled organisms, viruses, and bacteria attack and kill or consume other such organisms and presumably have for 3.8 billion years, the argument could be made that herbivorous creatures are 
aberrant the natural order of things. But I digress. Why is it that carnivorousness, a staple of evolution and survival, would be considered by a skeptic something that a good god would do away with when it is perfectly natural and acceptable in a world without God? I suppose the same argument could be extended out to all aspects of the problem of evil and suffering. If tectonic shift is the way the world works and must work in order to sustain life, why would seismic activity, volcanoes, and tsunamis be considered a bad thing that a good god would not allow? The same goes for weather patterns that produce blizzards, hurricanes, tornadoes, and droughts. Diseases, too. Why are diseases a bad thing if they are the way the world works? I have heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about all the ways the universe tries to kill us off just on this planet alone, not to mention everything out there in the universe that we know could do the trick, too. If there is no God, these things are just a normal part of doing business with nature. Why do they suddenly become bad in light of their being a god. Could it be that, despite the claims of many atheists and skeptics of having come to terms with ceasing to exist upon taking our last breath, the problem of evil demonstrates an inherent fear of death? Why else would everything from gamma radiation bursts to killer microbes to natural disasters be something lauded as crucial components of naturalism, catalyst spurring adaptation and speciation and evolution, and yet these very same aspects to be the subject of which the same people would demand? God either do away with or answer for? Why are these things evil in light of God, but not apart from him? I hope my long rambling sentences made some sense. I may have gotten a little carried away. I have just never really understood what I see here as a contradiction within atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism. And uh, as I explained to Mark, he doesn't have to worry. I think his arguments were very well worded and, and uh, well thought out. But of course, I don't necessarily uh, agree with them. And um, here's um, what I wrote back to Mark. Hey, Mark, great to hear from you. Of course, your comments made sense. Very much so. As always, your arguments are thoughtful, eloquently worded, and continue to keep me on my toes. I suppose my response to why we as skeptics or non-believers view certain phenomena as being bad or immoral opens yet another can of worms, namely the nature and origin of human morality. I believe we as humans are morally a mixed bag, both violent and tribal, but also wired with a capacity for compassion and empathy as well. For better or worse, we seem to have an affinity for moral reasoning. The question is, where does that morality come from? I'm sure you would say God, while I, of course, would say it's evolutionary in origin, part of being a social species. I suppose, ergo, that moral reasoning leads us as skeptics to be able to recognize suffering and iniquity and not only be offended by it, but to contemplate its reason for being. Not sure if my rambling answer makes sense, but as always, I love our high-minded jousting. Smiley face emoticon. <laughs> but then uh, I just realized Mark actually messaged me back again. It's a, another lengthy uh, response, so um, I probably won't go into it now. And I want to apologize if you can hear this weird noise that kind of sounds like a metronome. I think it's me scrolling around with my mouse on my computer. Very hypersensitive mic. And as I was just listening back to all that, um, a, a couple of points that Mark made jumped out at me um, where I thought, aha, maybe I found a chink or two in your armor. Uh, one was the idea that 
we consider things bad in a context where God exists, but not in a context or scenario where there is no God. Um, Well, I would take issue with that to some degree. I think that God or no God, certain things will fill us with distress, offend our moral sensibilities, or appear unjust or at the least unfortunate. I think since we're creatures that are wired for survival, some things are naturally going to be seen as bad. I'm sure even if a monkey gets stung by a mosquito, you know, it it pulls back from the sensation of pain in those, that's bad. Um, I I think we're both wired to try to avoid uh, physical and emotional and psychological pain. We're naturally led to seek out uh, I think as a survival mechanism, what is pleasurable and to try to avoid or escape um, what is painful or um, harmful or detrimental. So I'm sure even um, you know our primitive ancestors, if you imagine little um, australopithecines <laughs> going about, you know, it's basically bipedal chimpanzees almost, um, if they saw a large cat maul one of their children um, or if they saw one of their fellows or comrades, that sounds kind of a strange word, you know, um, one of their fellow primates of their same species consumed by an undertow or something uh, or fall to their death off a cliff, um, even though they wouldn't have had the mastery of language and probably the same capacity for self-reflection and abstract thought that we have, they would probably still have a negative or um, sorrowful or distressed response to those things. I think even um, animals like elephants, uh, you know, some of the more intelligent of our um, animal cousins, if you will, uh, like elephants will have been known to show emotion or grief regarding death. They've been seen to use their trunks to touch the bones of um, dead uh, family members, if I can use that term, from their herd. Is that what you call the plural form of uh, elephants? The the organized group they travel in? Is it a herd? I don't know. But um, they've been known to show grief and even acknowledge the passing of other elephants who will actually touch the bones with their trunks. And I think uh, chimpanzees uh, have been known, too, to um, show kind of grief and acknowledgement of death. And being our closest animal... um, relative. Chimpanzees like us are a mixed bag. They can be um, very social and cooperative, very family-oriented, and they've also been known to be very tribal, and males will chase down and basically brutalize and kill um, stray males from other troops. And just like us, they also prey on other um, mammals. There's some really disturbing footage out there of um, chimpanzees kind of racing through the treetops after... Um, I'm trying to think of what kind of monkey it is. I don't know if it's a gibbon or... But um, it almost looks like a spider monkey. They'll chase after these small monkeys and basically tear them apart in their teeth alive once they catch them. Uh, disturbing stuff. And in some cases, I think Ching Goodall is partially responsible for us thinking of um, 
the chimpanzee as our kind of gentle and wise animal cousin. And she realized later on in our career, I believe, to her horror, that they were capable of some really kind of dark and disturbing behavior, including in some kind of aberrant instances, even uh, cannibalism. So I think part of the reason why we consider certain things bad has to do with the fact that we're wired uh, for survival. And, um, and like I said in my reply to Mark, I think that uh, we are a mixed bag. We're, we, like chimpanzees, are capable of being petty and tribalistic and violent. But I think we're also wired um, with a capacity for compassion and empathy. And that's probably advantageous, too, in an evolutionary sense, um, because a social group that's able to cooperate and work as a team in some instances is going to stand a, a better chance of survival than with an every man for himself t- type of attitude. Uh, you're probably going to stand a better chance of um, surviving in a kind of little structured society where there are some rules and members do help each other out to a certain extent. And I think also um, our ability for self-reflection, I, I think, plays a big part in, in how especially uh, capable of empathy and compassion we are as human beings. I think naturally, probably just about every living organism um, instinctively draws back from pain. It, it draws away from uh, that which is harmful or life-threatening. It's a survival mechanism. Um, And I think because we're capable of this high-minded, abstract thinking, because we're so capable of uh, introspection and reasoning, we're able to acknowledge our own fear of pain, our own um, capacity for suffering, and be able to project, you know, and imagine what it would be like for someone else to go through that also. Or we can kind of put ourselves in someone else's shoes or imagine what their suffering uh, might be like. You know, we kind of vicariously winch and cringe for their suffering or whatever. Um, And furthermore, I think that also plays into ideas about what is just and what is unjust. We realize that we don't want to suffer our minds are advanced enough that we can imagine what the suffering of others is like and feel for them. And um, so we get this sense of what is right and what isn't, how we'd like to be treated. We know that we don't want to suffer. We know how we'd like to be treated. And our capacity for abstract thinking and empathy allows us to imagine what another's suffering um, might be like and realize that, hey, if it's fair for me to not want to suffer, the same probably applies to the next person as well. And there's also probably a more um, selfish or pragmatic reason for why we at least have a moral code as human beings or try to live up to a certain moral code and that it's in the best interest of every individual if society is structured to some degree and there's rules in place that uh, help to try to ensure the safety and well-being of everyone. 
So, you know, everyone, selfishly, I guess you could argue, but it's natural, wants to try to do their best to make sure that they don't fall prey to um, misfortune or man's inhumanity, the man. So you try to form a social contract. And perhaps, you know, you could say, if I don't want someone to break into my house at night and assault me, if I don't want someone to rob the goods out of my hand, um... If I don't want someone to engaging in any type of transgression against me, it makes sense that everyone enters this kind of social contract where we're simultaneously doing what's in the best interest of the individual and society as a whole by having these certain laws um, in place. But of course, still some people transgress. And, you know, every morning we kind of shake our heads when we hear whatever fresh crime stories the um, news has to offer, whether it be a shooting, a break-in, or whatever it is, Um, and whether it's due to social factors or someone just lacking a conscience, a kind of, uh, you know, a psychopath, someone who doesn't have that natural uh, capacity for empathy and compassion. Um, There are people out there that unfortunately... You know, we still have to be wary of and who break that kind of um, social contract that we have going. But anyway, I've been digressing so much, but I think you probably get my point, even though it was very long winded. I don't think we view things as bad only um, when God's in the equation. I think we're wired to try to escape misfortune and pain, suffering. And as I said, you know, to some extent also wired for empathy and compassion, we can realize when another one of our fellows, um, even uh, members of other species, are experiencing suffering as well. And I think scientifically, maybe Mark was trying to get at this in a way, those of us that love science kind of... step back and assume a certain kind of stoicism or objectivity when we're viewing natural um, phenomena with a scientific curiosity or interest where, yeah, we might watch a show on National Geographic or the History Channel about tsunamis or earthquakes or um, Ebola or whatever, you know, and um, and yet we don't hold science, you know, we don't hold the universe responsible for um, these horrific uh, natural disasters. In a sense, I think that's because in a case where, you, let's say, you have the scenario of a universe without God, um, then you don't have a self-aware being who is supposedly the author of creation to hold responsible. You basically have blind natural forces and processes that are responsible for those um, sufferings and uh, vagaries of existence. But I think still, ultimately, God or no God, it's a survival mechanism to to view some things as negative or harmful. But I think maybe Mark has a point in, in some sense that we do tend to blame God for the negative or ask why would a good God allow this to happen in a way, like I just said, we wouldn't uh, with the absence of God because then you're just dealing with blind natural forces. Um, And I think we're right in a sense to uh, 
Now, if you're a believer out there, you probably got, oh, going to be shaking your head. This boy's going to hell. But uh, I think we have a right to blame God in a sense. Uh, you know, theoretically, if we're going under the assumption that a God exists, um, because God is seen as a parental figure in a sense. You know, he's the author of creation and um most people like to think of God as not some absentee dad or absentee landlord, you know. Uh, I think most Christians want to believe that he's, um, to some degree, a God of intervention or a God who at least cares for his creations. And just like you might hold a mortal parent responsible if they do a subpar job in raising their child or um, allow their child to fall into harm, or even if they were to intentionally inflict suffering onto their child. Um, I think it's right in a sense to hold a cosmic parent, um, a cosmic father. Um, don't mean to be uh, chauvinistic. I just go with the traditional he um, pronoun. But uh, I suppose God could be he, she, or it, or transcend gender, you know. Um, but I think... It, for some reason, it seems right to me to blame, um, at least theoretically, because you know, I'm not really a, a believer, to blame this uh, th- this theoretical divine um, parent figure. It's kind of like you bring something into being, you innately have a moral responsibility to look after it, I would say, just like um, if a parent brings a child into the world. And there's um, sometimes apologists like to go after the atheists whenever they use the word moral. But I've already explained kind of how I personally believe morals are kind of an emergent property, that morals are a kind of evolutionary byproduct, and that um, just as sometimes as tribalism and violence can be beneficial in certain situations, uh, morality, compassion and empathy, group cooperation can also be beneficial to the survival of a species. And I think also, as, as I also touched on, uh, the fact that we've developed to the point where we're really capable of deep, abstract thinking and reasoning, we're able to deeply contemplate our own existence and the existence of others and uh, draw moral conclusions, kind of extrapolating from our own sense of empathy and compassion in being able to envision what if I was in that other person's situation. And of course, not all um, religions necessarily believe in a interventionist God or even a um, personal God. I remember in the early days of the show, I used to talk about the dichotomy between the personal and impersonal when talking about concepts of God Personal God sounds kind of funny because it sounds like you have this little being you keep in your pocket or whatever, your own personal deity. But uh, personal just means um, a God that's anthropomorphic, if not physically, at least in personality. Um, It's a God that's self-aware, a God that has um, certain human attributes that, uh, you know, say like in the Old Testament, sometimes uh, Yahweh is described as a loving or caring God. Sometimes he's a jealous or wrathful God. These are moral attributes that are being kind of projected onto what I would view as a mythological figure. And even um, the old polytheistic God. 
gods, uh, the gods of ancient Greece, the Norse gods, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, Zeus, Pan, uh, um, Dionysus, uh, whichever deity you choose, um, these are beings that are personal gods, and the old gods are often um, depicted to be physically anthropomorphic. Uh, they have human form. An impersonal god um, might be something more like you would find in Eastern mysticism or Eastern religion, where you have a kind of all-pervading force that is kind of... Um, the wellspring of consciousness or um, or spirit. Uh, sometimes you'll hear kind of new age um, speakers like Deepak Chopra uh, being of Indian descent. He draws heavily from Eastern religion and Eastern spirituality and he'll talk about how everything is consciousness. Um, if you're familiar with Buddhism or Taoism, you're probably familiar with this idea of this kind of cosmic oneness, of this impersonal kind of ocean of spirit or consciousness um, that everything emerges from and falls back into upon dissolution of the physical body. And of course, also in Zen Buddhism. And it's it's tricky. I, I think in a way it's an easy concept to understand, but it's uh, one of those concepts that's easier to contemplate and grasp than it is to explain to another person. But often words are used like oneness, um, kind of universal consciousness, or, or something like that. And I used to be really into Eastern religion. I never believed in it literally, but the principles helped me get through a dark time in my life back when I was probably like in my early 20s or something. I read a lot about Buddhism, etc. And, um, and that kind of sense of divine oneness is what the Buddha was pursuing in a sense. And um, the historical Buddha was supposedly an Indian prince, Prince Siddhartha. And the story goes that he was shielded from suffering and the vagaries of ex existence up until the time when maybe he was in his 30s. And so as a grown man for the first time, he encounters aging, disease, death, suffering. And he is shocked and deeply moved by these things and he seeks a way to escape suffering and basically um in buddhism you escape suffering by or through the dissolution of the ego you kind of in a sense you, you know you learn not to focus on yourself in a way not to focus on anything specifically you're supposed to kind of become one with that cosmic oneness and even buddha kind of eschewed the old hindu gods buddhism arose, arose out of hinduism the way christianity arose out of judaism and um i think in a sense you could almost make an argument that's kind of an atheistic religion i think buddha may have acknowledged the existence of the gods but he didn't think that salvation lay with them or that um you should spend time focusing on and um, this is the concept of samsara, 
the wheel, endless wheel of life and death. And a lot of people think of reincarnation as a good thing, right? You know, in the modern world, people that want to escape the fear of mortality and kind of new agey types will often embrace the concept of reincarnation. Sometimes they like to embrace the idea that there was someone great in a past life. I wonder how many Joan of Arcs are out there. You know what I mean? No one wants to be the diseased, leprous peasant. It's always someone great and uh, important. Um, but Buddhism, you know, is the idea of, and in Hinduism, the, the idea of karma, that you kind of accrue or accumulate credit, um, <laughs> you know, that goes towards your next life. And if you were good or you built up a lot of good karma, uh, you'll be reincarnated as something good in the next life. And you kind of ascend up the ladder. And the greatest thing you can be reincarnated as is a human. Um, but the Buddha saw life as suffering. And the only way to escape suffering was to break the endless cycle of birth and death. And you do that by attaining nirvana. Samsara is the endless cycle of birth and death. Nirvana is the extinguishing of the flame, where you become so enlightened, so one with the oneness, so to speak, that you're aware of nothing. It's like non-existence. Um, and in a way, so you can say that kind of oneness that's pursued in Eastern religion, you can kind of make an argument that that's an impersonal God in a sense. Uh, and also George Lucas, obviously the creator of Star Wars, was big into one of my heroes, Joseph Campbell, who um, was a professor who devoted his life to the, the study of uh, myth, basically. And I think George Lucas also... Um, had an interest in Eastern religion and philosophy, and that can be seen in the concept of the Force. You notice in Star Wars, they never talk about gods. They talk about the Force, this kind of, well, impersonal Force. You know what I mean? This all-pervasive spiritual oneness or something like that. But now I'm really going on a tangent. I didn't think I'd be talking about this today. I know Mark also mentioned um, something about maybe atheists and skeptics term certain things as being bad because of um, a fear of death. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it might have a ring of truth to it. It might touch on things I talked about a little bit ago, where um, all of us are wired to want to avoid suffering and, and uh, to avoid pain. It's, uh, as I said a few times, and maybe um, it should be the drinking game. I haven't talked about any uh, drinking games in a while, where if I caught myself in the early days repeating a certain word or phrase too much, I'd say, oh, that'd make a good drinking game. Maybe survival mechanism <laughs> could be the drinking game this week. Uh, don't drink and drive. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're wired to want to avoid pain. It's a survival mechanism. You accidentally touch your hand to a hot stove, you automatically pull it back and uh, grimace and make a mental note to never, never do that again. Uh, so I think all of us are afraid of what's uh, harmful, and you could kind of extend that to a fear of death. And we're probably the only species, if not one of the only species that is keenly aware of death, that's able to, you know, like I said, um, there's certain animals like um, some of the great apes and um, 
elephants that seem to be have some awareness of the concept of death. Uh, but we're probably the only one that can deeply contemplate their own mortality. So I think in that sense, we probably do have more of a fear of death than at least in intellectual sense than other species. But uh, I think all living things that have a nervous system anyway, um, have a, a, a fear of, uh, an innate fear of that, which is, uh, harmful. But it's funny, I didn't know I'd be talking about all this stuff. Uh, this might end up being one of the longest shows in a while, and I'm going to keep going because I want to cover the material I had originally planned to discuss in this episode. And I'll uh, try to do that now. So last week I gave a brief list of reasons why I doubt the existence of God or a higher power. Um, the reasons I gave included the man-made nature of religion, my point being that since religions and religious texts, including the uh, Judeo-Christian Bible, seem to be clearly man-made, uh, how can we seriously consider them in and of themselves to be evidence of God's existence? I listed some of the contradictions in the Bible and kind of touched on the way um, you know religions can contradict uh, one another externally or sometimes even internally contradict themselves. Um, another reason I gave, and this is one that philosophers and theologians have been wrestling with uh, for millennia and which um, I had just addressed when responding to Mark's message, and that's uh, how do you reconcile the idea of a good God with um, all the iniquity and suffering in the world. And I gave examples of things like disease, monstrous birth defects, uh, natural disasters, you know, tsunamis and things that wipe out hundreds if not thousands of our fellow and otherwise innocent human beings um, with the ease and indifference of someone accidentally stepping on an anthill. And I also attacked the concept of original sin um, for an exp explanation for suffering. Um, Another reason I gave for, and maybe I should step back, uh, my, just to reiterate, my problem with original sin is that it in of itself seems to be an unfair concept um, or an unjust concept. The idea that the transgressions of two individuals, you know, namely Adam and Eve, kind of had a domino effect in that all the otherwise innocent um, and successive generations have to suffer for the transgressions, at least according to the myth, as I see it, the first two humans. Um, you know, if you were to take the story literally, someone eats the wrong kind of fruit, and now everyone down the line's got to pay for it with all sorts of uh, awful misfortune. Um, just doesn't seem right to me. It seems like kind of a vulgar idea. Uh, another reason I gave for doubting the supernatural, if not God specifically, was the dearth of evidence. I spoke about how just about every supernatural claim, from ghost sightings to communication with the dead, can usually be debunked. Um, and it brings to mind, I don't know if anyone else out there is a fan of James Randi, and it's funny how a lot of the biggest skeptics out there and debunkers happen to have had this start as magicians. You have uh, Penn and Teller, you have James Randi, uh, Houdini. A lot of people don't know that. You know, they think about Houdini as this mystical figure. Houdini was actually a great debunker of the uh, supernatural. And um, he used to go to things like 
seances and things like that and uncover the fraud or trickery that was going on. And I think, I'm trying to think if it was his wife or mother or someone out there uh, listening knows, I'm sure. But someone dear to him passed away and um, they made an arrangement while being alive that, you know, if, if you die before me, try to get in touch or I'll do this to try and communicate with you, and which he wasn't able to do. And um, he was deeply offended by the idea of someone trying to fool someone else into thinking they were in contact with the spirit of a deceased relative. Yeah, so Penn and Teller... Uh, James Randi, uh, Houdini, and also in England, there's uh, Darren Brown. He's kind of like England's answer to uh, like Chris Angel, or uh, I forget the name of that famous uh, street magician. The guy kind of sounds and looks groggy, <laughs> kind of like I do. <laughs> He's like a darker version of me. Um, I forget the magician's name. That is absolutely going to drive me crazy now. But he's kind of like the uh, the English equivalent of one of those popular, um, you know, street magi- uh, magicians. And uh, I've seen videos of, on YouTube of Darren Brown actually being interviewed by Richard Dawkins. It's pretty interesting. And Darren Brown goes into things like cold reading and these different techniques that can be used to appear as if you're drawing information a- about someone that you should know uh, by normal means from them. And usually it starts by, you know, you just kind of grope around in the dark and see if you can get a hit. You'll say to the audience, uh, did someone lose a relative with a name beginning with J? It's something really vague. And then you work from there and you make it appear as if you know more about the person than you should when you're actually kind of tricking the person into revealing information about themselves. Um but anyways, James Randy's had this contest going for s- some time and this challenge where if anyone can prove having supernatural abilities or give him concrete evidence of the paranormal that meets the criteria of serious scientific testing, you know, um, he will give you a million dollars. And a lot of people are scared to try or some people have tried, but they never make it usually past the first round of testing or whatever. And there was one high-profile psychic, quote-unquote psychic. I think her name is Sylvia Brown, who used to be really big. And I think it was on Larry King. She said she accepted uh, James Randi's challenge and then um, kind of chickened out and never followed through. And I think to this day, James Randi keeps like a clock on his web. Uh, site that shows how many weeks it's been since Sylvia Brown accepted this challenge but hasn't followed through. You know, so it's, uh, there's all these people that want to try to convince themselves or others that they have these special powers. But when it comes time to put those powers to the test under uh, the observa- observation of a keen scientific eye, suddenly um, they're either a no-show or they uh, don't pass muster. I think often psychics and people like that, uh, people to claim to be able to communicate with the dead or perform these kind of cheap parlor tricks, kind of feed off of um, the suspension of disbelief. You know, they get this giddy, 
allow themselves to get this kind of giddy thrill out of uh, suspending disbelief and allowing themselves to believe in things that really aren't quite rational. But the reason that I'm rehashing last episode's list is because I think I left out a biggie, and that would be consciousness as an emergent property of the brain. And what I mean by consciousness as an emergent property of the brain is, um, well, it's a, it's a fancy way of saying that consciousness, self-awareness, the soul, psyche, etc., isn't some eternal essence instilled in the flesh by a divine creator that survives beyond death, but rather it seems to be something that emerges or arises from the meat brain, to put it crudely. Uh, it's something I've talked about a lot on the show um, in the past. And in kind of scientific parlance, the um, term emergent property refers to how complex systems can arise out of simple processes. So you could say even evolution, uh, biological evolution is uh, an example of an emergent property where you have single-celled organisms um, that over time become more and more complex uh, to the point where you have multicellular life and eventually you have uh, us and the rest of the animal kingdom. So if you're a believer, you might be asking, well, how can this guy be so, so sure that consciousness is a product of the brain? And it's a good question, I suppose. Uh, and to me, it seems a logical conclusion going on what we know about the nature of the brain according to medical science. We know that the brain is a manifold organ with different parts responsible for different functions, parts that are responsible for language skills, memory, impulse control, higher reasoning, facial recognition, so on and so on. Uh, we know that if a certain part of the brain gets damaged, that the related function can be impaired as well. You know, if there's damage to the uh, frontal lobe, I believe it is, that um, impulse control can become inhibited. Damage another part and memory can uh, be affected. Damage another and the ability to recognize faces can become compromised. If we look at a horrible degenerative disease like Alzheimer's, we can see that there's a direct correlation between the deterioration of the physical brain and the deterioration of the self, uh, which is what makes it such a, a tragic and feared disease. It's as if the afflicted loved one is literally deteriorating or fading away. Uh, in some ways, they're no longer even the same person in, in um, severe cases. They're basically kind of uh, a shadow or a uh, corruption of what they used to be. And it seems to me, with the exception of some vestigial bits perhaps, that uh, every part of the body has a purpose. And the purpose of the brain, other than regulating our autonomic functions and maintaining homeostasis, um, uh, I guess, is to think, is to reason. If the soul was responsible for consciousness, why would we need a brain at all? What would be the reason for all that gelatinous matter with its complex skein of uh, neural pathways between our ears? It would seem that all those things that constitute the self, dare I say the soul, are native to the brain, that they're products of the brain. And the logical conclusion, as deeply disturbing as it may be, is that when the brain goes, we go. Uh, as I said in the last episode, in a spirit of intellectual honesty, I like to test the merit of my arguments by playing devil's advocate against um, myself. 
And the best I can come up with to counter my own view that the self dies when the brain dies is the possibility that the brain is merely some kind of conduit for consciousness. And perhaps the complex and manifold nature of the brain is for regulating and not generating consciousness. And perhaps ergo consciousness may survive the death of the brain. Uh, its temporary house or, or conduit uh, returning to whence ever it came. Um, but of course, the problem with this theory is that it's pure speculation and not grounded in science. So it would seem to me um, the more logical conclusion, unfortunately, is that consciousness is as temporary as the brain itself. Uh, well, on that cherry note, um, I guess I'll call this a long-winded episode a wrap. As always, you can like the show on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can review the show or subscribe through iTunes or Podbean. You can now listen to the show on Stitcher. And if you're feeling generous, you can contribute to the show's upkeep uh, via the PayPal widget on the official Weekend Out Podbean page. And I always feel like such a beggar when I do that, but hey, why not? I'm putting all this hard work in every week. I guess I feel guilty, but I'm going to ask anyway. I probably shouldn't feel guilty. It's just me being neurotic. But anyways, I leave it up to you. Uh, oh, Also, you can check out some of my video uploads on the Weekend Out YouTube channel. Nothing too fancy. Just some clips from atheist uh versus theist debates that maybe I found online. Some of the older episodes I've added some basic visuals to, things like that. Okay, uh, but with that being said, as always, thanks for listening, and until next week. David Blaine, that's the name I was thinking of. 